This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Let's get you right to those Fed minutes. Most Fed officials view July rate cut as a mid-cycle adjustment. A number of Fed officials stressed need for Fed flexibility. Those are the redheads crossing the Bloomberg right now. We're going to dig into that much more. I'm Jason Kelly. I'm alongside a very special co-host, Marty Schenker, the chief content officer of Bloomberg. He's also run all, done so many things at Bloomberg, including running all of our government uh, and economics and political coverage. So he's a perfect guy to have alongside on a day like today. To set that Business Week agenda, we've got just a pair of strong, strong voices here. Carl Riccadonna, Chief U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics, and Dave Wilson, Stocks Editor for Bloomberg, the author of the Chart and Stock of the Day, both here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Uh, So, Carl, I want to start with you. Remind us, because it bears remembering, and Bob Moon pointed out, why do we care about the Fed Minutes? It's backward-looking. We're just sort of getting some insight into their thinking, or what? Well, we're getting insight uh, into the thinking of a Fed that uh, did not yet know that we would be uh, ramping up the trade conflict with China. Mm. So they are particularly dated in these uh, circumstances. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, we can kind of look at how the Fed was thinking at that time and then try to make uh, an extrapolation of how then they would respond to uh, the latest trade headlines and whatnot. Uh, And so in doing so, right, the the concern was, oh, maybe the minutes won't be uh, dovish enough for the markets. Uh, But I think people are taking this in the context that uh, the Fed was not aware of that de- deterioration in the economic outlook, including that risk-off bid, which uh, uh, bid up the U.S. dollar right. uh, and also uh, steamrolled uh, what little slope was left in the uh, Treasury yield curve. Uh, and so when we when we put all of that together, uh, that really tells me that uh, you know it was a mid-cycle adjustment, using Jay Powell's words. Uh, I think they are still on the uh, mid-cycle adjustment uh, mindset, uh, but that adjustment is going to be bigger than what they were looking for at that time. And so uh, just this morning, uh, my team uh, revised our Fed call for this year. Uh, We're now uh, looking for a rate cut in September, another one in October, uh, and a third in December of this year. So previously, we were looking for one additional move. Now we're looking for three more. You jump from one to three. And that is basically due to uh, that tweet, which came out 24 hours later than uh, the meeting where these minutes were written, uh, which uh, caused all of that uh, problem in the financial markets. So in terms of the Fed being data dependent, uh, the economic data is not looking so bad. However, the financial market data uh, is telling the Fed they need to make a bigger mid-cycle adjustment than what they were intending to do uh, at the time of that uh, July 31st rate decision. So, Carl, why don't they just do a 50-point cut and, cut and uh, really change the market? That, that would uh, uh, potentially uh, rattle market participants. So, uh, if we were so they're sli- threading the needle. If we were sliding into recession, uh, then they should be taking more aggressive yeah. measures. But because the economy is performing well, uh, really what they're trying to do is just uninvert the yield curve. And so they're just going to peck away at that until they manage to see uh, some uh, steepness uh, return. What are you seeing in terms of market reaction, Dave? 
Not a whole lot, yeah. frankly. I mean, you always get some volatility after uh, rate decisions or meeting minutes or whatever, but it really doesn't amount to a whole lot in the context of the day, and it's pretty much washed itself out at this point. So what you're left with is a market that's showing some fairly broad-based strength. Uh, certainly the uh, earnings reports out of Target and Lowe's really leading the way. Yeah. Because they suggest that at least in those segments of retailing, consumers are willing to spend. You know, we're talking about the discounters in the case of Target. because we had the results last week out of Walmart that also went over well with investors. Not quite as well as Target's, given that the stock's up more than 19% at the moment. And, you know, the shares have set a record. Uh, and, and Lowe's, you know, also up uh, 10%. So, you know, in both those cases... Uh, you, you've got some some well received you know retail earnings, and we should point out Lowe's right after Home Depot, whose numbers also went over well. Right. So you know pluses in that area. I mean, jury's still out on retailing, perhaps more broadly, and we'll get more of an idea about that when Nordstrom reports after the close of trading. By the way, Nordstrom shares up more than four percent. But, yeah. Good, Carl. <laughs> but, but. but following everything Dave's saying about great retail landscape in Q2, right? This is part of the data dependency story for the Fed. Uh, Since then, because of the tweet and the route and stocks and everything we saw, uh, consumer sentiment fell off pretty sharply in the the preliminary reading for August. Uh, The other problem uh, is that uh, all of this great retail uh, news is coming on the backs of uh, pretty strong confidence, which now is maybe wobbling. Uh, also, we're seeing a deceleration in the fuel in the tank of consumers. And so uh, the last jobs report uh, looked like it was right on the screws in terms of the uh, payroll print. But when we extrapolate income generation out of that jobs report, uh, we see a somewhat disturbing trend. Now, it's a it's a yellow light, not a red light that's flashing. Uh, but just to put some numbers behind it, uh, at the start of the year, back in January, employment generated income uh, was growing 5.7%. Uh, that has slowed to 4.4%. So that's over a full percentage point deceleration. It's telling you consumers can carry us through in the back half of the year, uh, but it's not going to be uh, fast and furious. It's going to be slow and steady uh, from consumers. But what about this notion that uh, Brian Moynihan told us uh, earlier this week that the greater con- uh, as great a concern of recession is people thinking there might be a recession? Is part of this reasoning on the Fed to try and change the perception of what's happening in the economy? Absolutely. So I I don't know how much uh, Main Street America is attuned to uh, what the Fed is doing. However, uh, businesses are very sensitive to what the Fed is doing. And that's a key reason why they won't do a 50 basis point move, because if if the Fed's going 50 bips, uh, the business sector is going to say, what does the Fed know that we don't? Uh, And there will be a sense of panic. However, the other side of that is uh, the business sector also knows that an inverted yield curve often is a precursor of recession. And so the Fed wants to remove that inversion, uh, which will then send a positive signal to uh, markets that maybe this was a, uh, a false positive uh, from yield curve inversion. And, and, and the Fed has taken the countermeasures uh, to set things on a proper course. 20 seconds. Final word, Dave. Carl was talking about a route in stocks. I'm trying to find it. I mean, the S&P 500 is down no more than 6% from its high in late July. Now, you could argue, well, smaller companies have done worse. And we'll come back to that point next hour with my chart of the day. Wow. I love it when Dave Wilson brings in the deep tease to the chart of the day. All 
right. So, Marty, fair to say that if you put out a story that says that starts Goldman plans hiring, a lot of people are going to read it. Um, and I That's read it and sure. I say, wow, hiring on Wall Street. And I bet a lot of people do, too. And then you read a little deeper and say, oh, you have to know how to code. And you go, wait, what? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a great combination, hiring spree and Goldman, to get readership on the terminal. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, but it's, it's actually a very interesting story on a, on a strategy within Goldman on how they're going to take advantage of the new way people are trading on Wall Street. Totally. So let's get into that with uh, Sri Natarajan. He is finance reporter covering all things Goldman. His scoop on the Bloomberg, as we've been talking about, I'm looking at it as the second most read story of the past eight hours. It's going to be the most read uh, momentarily, I'm betting. So what's going on here? Let's start off by me trying to defend myself. You don't have to read that deep to figure out what it was. We had a parenthetical ride in the headline. Come on, Jason. <laughs> you read deep into the headline. How's that? Fair enough. Look, this is this is really a sign of where Wall Street is headed. The writing is on the wall, and they're all reacting to it. Uh, uh, let's let's put this in context. This is one of Goldman's biggest hiring spree in years. They had to go up and down the chain, get approvals from everyone to make this happen. And yet the catch here is almost all of the hires they're looking to make are coders, and uh, that that's the way the market is headed. You don't have traders who walk around the floors with a big stick to wield anymore. They are all just more or less intermediaries. And if you can improve the process with the use of computers, electronics, automation, why not? That's what the clients want, and that's what the banks are reacting to. Can I add a little disclaimer here? I mean, I think Bloomberg terminals recognized that uh, yeah. three decades ago and uh, recognized the role of electronics and computers in, in the way Wall Street works. And obviously, the rest of Wall Street is sort of catching up. And so what does this mean for Marquee specifically? Because that is – that's a sort of a product service. It's been a big focus in sort of the, the David Solomon era at Goldman, right, Tree? Right. So if we can take a step back, the sort of changes we're looking at here, and, and, and these are going to be expensive with respect to all the overhauling of their trading platforms, their analytical tools that they're trying to build. They have won approvals to spend well north of $200 million over the next three years to put that into place. Two real main focus areas. One, which is the overhaul of the trading platform that we talked about, which internally they call Project Atlas. Atlas is sort of their trading platform that they're trying to develop. And then the other one is Marquee. This is this risk and analytical tool that they're hoping to provide to their business partners, to their clients, uh, and hoping that once they do the analysis, when they need to go and transact, when they need to conduct the trade, they funnel the business back to Goldman. So it's win-win for them on both fronts. Well, uh, and it's interesting to me that these kinds of talented coders are exactly the kind of people who are in demand outside of finance as well. So they got to be paying up. They're right? going to have to create large incentives to attract these people because there's competition for their services everywhere. And Wall Street has never had the greatest reputation of being able to hire uh, top-notch tech talent. So right. they certainly will have to pay up. Uh, and they're saying, look, we're willing to do that. We're going to be out there. We're going to be actively and aggressively doing this in the market. And they made it clear they don't want to go into colleges and universities and hire people from there. They want to do big lateral hires. They want to do rate talent from rivals. And that doesn't just mean rivals from across Wall Street, but also from the tech industry. All right, Tree, I'm glad you're here, and this is a really good story, but I also want to ask you about other news this week on Wall Street. 
the Volcker Rule 2.0 coming out. Goldman had been, shall we say, maybe a little critical of the the Volcker Rule and how it was implemented over the past few years. What's been the reaction from Goldman and elsewhere on Wall Street as that has sort of rolled out here? I'm, I'm actually glad you bring that up because it isn't very different from what we're discussing right now. When, when the news came out yesterday, the, the, the top thing that came up in conversations with everyone across the street was this felt like incremental changes. They were making it a little less complex. They were bringing a lot more clarity to the process. But was it going to bring back the trading glory days? I'm afraid not. That's because they're, they've essentially cleaned up the station, but the train has left. Banks have evolved to the new environment. And, and like we talked about, traders are now mostly serving as intermediaries. They've they've reacted to technological changes. So just this little tweak in the Volcker rule is not going to take it back to what it was. Right. Perhaps if they roll it back further and do something drastic and dramatic, then we can see a reversal. But for now, things will go on as is. It's uh, sort of interesting, even if the, uh, the Volcker rule was completely rescinded, it's had the desired effect because behavior on Wall Street has fundamentally changed since 2008. Yeah, that's totally true. And let's be clear, Goldman and others haven't stood still. And, you know, this was also the week, again, since we have you here uh, in 30 seconds. Tell us the implications of this new credit card rolling out, this Apple Goldman credit card. That feels like a big deal, right? Right. Who who could have thought 10 years ago, when we're talking about the fixed income trading powerhouse on Wall Street, this top-notch investment bank, that 10 years later, they would be looking for new sources of income and revenue and going to the consumers, going to the little guy and offering them credit cards. That's happening. And that's the change that's here to stay. And 20 years on, Goldman will be very different from what we've known it to be for the last 150 years. Yeah, great stuff. Sri Natarajan is finance reporter looking specifically after everything related to Goldman Sachs. His scoop on this on that bank it's one of the most read stories on the bloomberg don't cry for me Argentina. all right so marty Schenker, the lead of this column really grabbed me investors in argentina would seem to have no peers among global losers Strong language from our uh, editor-in-chief emeritus, don't you think? Yeah, it is strong language, but it's certainly appropriate. Argentina's uh, stock market had the worst uh, decline uh, in uh, decades just recently, and uh, there's no sign of any let-up because of the political uncertainty there. And leave it to Matt Winkler, though, to find some bright spots. He's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. The eternal optimist, Matt. You know, we say that about you. So This so, is amazing. Um, actually, I like to think I'm a realist. And <laughs> the reality is that in the 21st century, actually, uh, two companies began in Argentina. And uh, they are very much 21st century companies. The, uh, the first one is called uh, Mercando Libra, which literally means free market. And if you want to put it into context, it's like the Amazon and PayPal of Latin America. And it certainly has the lion's share of business that uh, those two companies do, uh, certainly in the U.S. The second company is Globant, which is um, equally interesting because it comes up with solutions for all kinds of tech companies like Global, uh, Google, Alphabet, uh, everybody. And um, these two companies have actually gone from strength to strength since they went public, just to put it in perspective. Um, They're up 109% 
and 90% this year at a time when the Merval essentially lost half its value, as Marty uh, said. And over the past five years, Mercantile Libra is up 442%, and Globant is up 621%. So why is this happening? It's because these companies are global in scope and scale. They are, for example, in myriad locations. I mean, just again, to put it in perspective, uh, Mercantile Libra is in uh, 18 countries. So you have some sense of, of, of where they are. Most of their revenue is derived from outside of Argentina. Yet, uh, they are very much based in the country, uh, both in Buenos Aires, both with really uh, impressive headquarters. Their workforces have increased uh, more than 30% this year. Uh, that is since 18. And um, you know, they are everything that Argentina could be. So I guess you could say I am an optimist that way, but they're doing it. And so they're often obscured by the reality of Argentina uh, historically stiffing its creditors, uh, reneging on all kinds of other deals and debts, and rigging its economic data. Uh, that was at least the legacy of the government preceding Macri, and who knows, we're getting a signal it's going right. back to that. Uh, it's also important to note that these companies are traded outside of Argentina. Yeah, and that's not so much about Argentina per se as it is they look like a lot of companies do for the greatest sponsorship, and they're going to get it in big liquid markets like the U.S. So um, I think they don't have any aversion to being listed in Argentina. It just so happens, though, there are a lot of companies – for example, in Israel, that would do the same thing. And Israel is not a basket case, but the companies there see the same opportunity. So these two uh, understandably pick the most liquid markets where they want their shares to be traded. And so, Matt, you know, setting these companies aside just momentarily, knowing what you do uh, about this country and sort of global economics and politics and, and all of it, what is the hope, if there is any, in the short term for Argentina? Because there was such a, a, a massive surprise in just a few weeks ago okay. politically. Let's put this in a historical context. The beginning of the 20th century, Argentina was uh, – the biggest economy in the Western Hemisphere. It actually was bigger than the U.S. Uh, early on. Now, that changed. But one of the reasons why uh, it was is because if you've ever been to Buenos Aires, it looks like, you know, an amazing European city yeah. with, all the, with all the finishes. Um, the literacy rate in Argentina is among the highest. Uh, natural resources are abundant. So it has everything going for it, unfortunately, except politics, which have been sort of an eternal curse. And the politics have been regressive to the extent that um, anything but free markets, anything but, uh, if you will, international mindedness and global trade. These two companies are the opposite of that. These two companies epitomize globalization, uh, technology, um, everything that, by the way, points to, in the case of Globon, for, exa- for example, artificial intelligence. Right. Uh, Globon is at the forefront of artificial intelligence. And if you ask Globon, you know, where's the world going, it would say the biggest single event in our lifetime is digital transformation, and that's what these two companies are about. All right. It's a really, really thought-provoking piece, as always. Matt Winkler, he's a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, also the editor-in-chief emeritus, the founder of Bloomberg News, here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. (laughs) 
So, Marty Schenker, we are continuing to look east, as they say, to China, specifically to Hong Kong. Uh, More protests, more tensions uh, arising just today. Uh, Who knows what we'll see this weekend. Let's dig into that a bit. Max Baucus is former U.S. Senator, U.S. Ambassador to China under President Obama, also a former Democratic Senator from Montana. He joins us on the phone from Washington. Ambassador Baucus, great to have you back with us here on Bloomberg Business Week. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right. So let's start on Hong Kong, if we can. Help us understand. You were there, I believe, uh, relatively recently. Help us understand the view on the ground, especially from someone like yourself who's had so much uh, experience there, understands maybe some of the nuances that the the rest of us wouldn't quite capture. Well, um, this goes back basically to the date when the Hong Kong was handed over to China in 1997, one country, two systems. And nobody really defined what that meant at the time. The assumption was that um, mainland China, post Deng Xiaoping, would continue to open up, modernize, and that uh, Hong Kong and China would work pretty well together. Back then, too, there wasn't quite the same desire for democracy um, at then as there is today. So over time, there's increased demand for democracy among the people in Hong Kong, but at the same time, China has become more oppressive, more restrictive. Uh, China under uh, Xi Jinping is uh, is not the open China politically, at least that that was assumed back in 1997. And the real catalyst here that sparked the the, the, the battle, the debate here, was when Hong Kong proposed this extradition right. provision, which would allow um, China to um, get people, Chinese citizens from Hong Kong back up into China. And that, that was the catalyst. And the real problem is, it's, it, in addition to all that, a lot of Hong Kong people, the younger people, have faced other problems. One, rents are just so high, highest cost of living uh, housing in the world by far. Second, they wonder what their future is. They know that Hong Kong is going to be handed over to China, a, a repressive country in, in their view, um, in, in, in 2047. So, What's their future? And I think this demonstration that we see now is part of a kind of a last gasp. I mean, Hong Kong people, younger people kind of had it. Add to the problem, they got the tycoons who own all the property, and they're not allowing rents to go down where they should. And so it's just a a bad situation. Right. Uh, Ambassador Marty Schenker here. Uh, What do you see as the risks for presidency of China if— uh, in, if he wants to make these demonstrations go away, what can he really do? Well, it's the big question. Um, how would he make the demonstrations go away? Um, the obvious first question, will he send in the PLA, will he send in the army? And uh, he will not do that. That would be catastrophic for China's image if that were to happen. So he'll work with Carrie Lam and the Hong Kong government try to have the police restore order as much as they possibly can without uh, causing real opinions uh, to to be upset with how they're doing it. But this is, uh, Xi Jinping will not allow Hong Kong to go south. That is, it will not allow Hong Kong to become democratic with with universal suffrage. You will not let that happen. And, And the protesters know that it's kind of a long shot for them to get there. Universal suffrage has been a, a, 
it's a band among honk from, from Hong Kong people for decades. And every time they go closer to it, mainland China says, okay, well, promise you guys universal suffrage, but not until 2010 or 2017. Then the date gets close to 10 or 17. It doesn't really happen. So the people of Hong Kong know that, um, and China knows it cannot allow universal suffrage. Right. So it's, it's still a standoff. And so meanwhile, Ambassador Bacchus, we have these ongoing trade negotiations between the U.S. and China. Uh, you know, most people, I think, would agree that the U.S. would be wise to stay away from commenting on the Hong Kong protests and sort of conflating these at all. Uh, and, and yet, uh, I think it's safe to say that, you know, we have a president who is, you know, pretty open about giving his opinion on things and, and has started to uh, – draw some uh, sort of conflate them a a little bit. Uh, What does this tell us about the state and and how much do you worry about this derailing at all uh, what's going on on the trade negotiation front? Well, it's it's not exactly relevant to the question, but I I was serving in Beijing before the election. The Chinese leadership would ask me, who is this guy, President Trump? What's he all about? And (laughs) it was clear to me they preferred him over Hillary, because they said, well, Hillary Hillary cares about human rights. Trump doesn't care about human rights. We like Trump. I got a lot of that back in 2016 or so. But um, anyway, to answer your question, I, I think that um, that um, Xi Jinping's going to have to, again, figure out how to, with through Carrie Lam, the uh, chief executive, show a little bit of sympathy and understanding of the people of Hong Kong to try to diffuse the tension, and I, I think that's, that'll happen. But I'm afraid it's going to get worse before it gets better. And, We're quite yet at the point. And what about the trade negotiations? I mean, where are we? Give us a sense of where we are at this point, what we may see in the short term uh, in terms of the U.S. and China coming to some sort of agreement on some element of this. Well, I very much hope and we have some trade agreement. Um, you know, People talk about China buying a lot more or Boeing aircraft and soybeans, et cetera, and maybe China also showing that it's going to back off a little bit on technology transfer, et cetera. To be totally truthful, I'm not terribly sanguine we're going to get a major deal before uh, the election. Hmm. However, when we get close to the election, uh, President Trump's going to, if, if the economy is sour, he's going to do all he can to try to send the stock market up. But China knows that, too. So right. China has, has leverage. So I, I just, I'm a little bit nervous I tend to think that um, President Xi Jinping really believes we can't trust that guy. He changes his mind all the time. We can't do a deal with him. It comes down to trust. It goes both ways because we Americans, it's our, based upon past practice, find that we can't trust the Chinese either. They'll, right. they'll say they're going to do something and they never do. So I'm, I don't know that we have a sufficient trust there or sufficient mutual respect for both sides to get a deal. All right. Uh, We're going to leave it there. Uh, Good to catch up with you. Max Bacchus is former U.S. Senator and U.S. Ambassador to China under President Obama, also the former Democratic Senator from the state of Montana. He joined us on the phone from Washington, D.C. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us.
Drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it's time for the drive to the close. We head closer and closer to the close of trading here in the U.S. As you heard Bob say, all the major indices are up right around eight-tenths of a percent each. So let's figure out what's driving that and maybe take a look ahead to the next couple days looking west to Jackson Hole. Aaron Kennan is co-founder and chief executive officer of Clear Harbor Asset Management. They look after more than $700 million. He joins us on the phone from New York City. Aaron, great to have you back with us. Thanks for having me again. All right. So I take it you're going to be tuned in to everything that's coming out of Jackson Hole. We've been sort of joking about it, but not really on the show that it's been a few years since we've been this focused uh, on what's going on out at that symposium. Yeah, I'm certainly interested to see what Chairman Powell has to say. I think uh, unlike previous chairmans that have been sort of rooted in, in some of the academic work of, of monetary policy, I think he is less anchored, and I don't mean that as a critique, but uh, I think that uh, we have certainly heard, you know, one week one thing and the next week uh, another thing based on the, the changing data set as well as the changing nature of the capital market structure. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if, and I do think the market is starting to, to realize that, uh, if he was perhaps a bit more dovish, for say, uh, let's say, at Jackson Hole than, than the minutes today uh, in, intimated. Uh, Aaron, uh, Marty Schenker here. And obviously, uh, the gorilla not in the room is Donald Trump and his criticisms of the Fed. Uh, do, do you think that that in some way affects the communication that Jerome Powell has to has to convey to the marketplace? Well, Marty, I don't think it's helpful uh, for sure. Um, I do think Powell is his own person. I think the FOMC is its own is its own working uh, board, if you will. Uh, I think they're looking at the data set, and I think they're sort of looking at the U.S. data set and saying, well, the glass is sort of half full. We have consumer data that looks strong, employment data looks strong, but gosh, that manufacturing data and the PMI data at both home and abroad look pretty darn ugly. Um, and um, I think they're also realizing that perhaps they raise rates too too far, uh, too fast, and they cut their balance sheet since 2017, while the rest of the world was was frankly expanding their balance sheet and embracing a negative interest rate policy. So um, I think it's unfortunate that you know Trump can sort of wave the flag and say I was right. Um, because I do think there's a basis for probably cutting rates from here. And now it's going to be, of course, a question as to how the market perceives that decision. I do think that the Fed is is about to cut rates by much more than 25 basis points uh, on a go-forward basis. Um, So we'll have to wait and see on that. So, Aaron, uh, earlier on in the show, Marty and I were able to catch up with uh, Max Baucus, the former U.S. ambassador to China during the Obama administration, also a former U.S. senator, of course. He essentially said, as it relates to U.S.-China, probably not going to get anything meaningful by way of a deal before the election, except for something that the Trump administration is essentially able to cobble together at the last minute, sort of to declare victory ahead of that vote next November. A, do you agree from what you see? And B, how do you invest into a scenario like that? 
Yeah. I, well, I think there are a couple things going on. One is uh, I tend to embrace that general view. It, it may sound a bit cynical, but I think that uh, it would be in the best interest for Trump to sort of hold out, even if he has a quote-unquote trade deal with China, because he's able to sort of speak to his base and and uh, I think that can be uh, good, good, solid politics for for the November election. But I, I also believe the market is almost too focused on the the China-U.S. Huh. trade uh, dispute. I think it's a little bit of, frankly, a red herring for the overall negative uh, tone in the global economy. So I, what I'm trying to say is that if uh, the trade dispute uh, were to somehow settle tomorrow, I think the global economy remains uh, still a huge question mark. And that's why the ECB and the BOJ have embraced, embraced negative interest rates. They haven't embraced negative interest rates because uh, they're worried about the global trade spat between uh, the U.S. and China per se. Uh, but I also think there's another repercussion that, that people are not necessarily contemplating, and that is the global supply chain uncertainty. When you have uh, the current administration not only pointing fingers at China, uh, which I think is frankly well-grounded. I think China's broken WTO rules uh, for years now, and it's about time that we have this conversation with China. But if you're a company that says, I may want to depart from China and put my manufacturing somewhere else, whether it's Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, Mexico, uh, it's not clear how the, the Trump administration, President Trump in particular, is is going to uh, conduct himself as it pertains to tariffs on, on these countries. He, he one day does one thing and the next day does another. So uh, the uncertainty is leading, I think, business decision-making uh, at a very uncertain uh, sort of status at the moment. Not great for the global supply chain. Uh, Aaron, let me ask you, do you think the U.S., uh, uh, there's weakness around the world in various places. Is the U.S. headed for a slowdown or even a, a recession? I think it, 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 I work in probabilities, and I think that the probability that the U.S. economic trajectory continues to be one of a sideways to downward sloping economy uh, is, 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 is higher today than it's been at any time within the last couple of years. Um, I think we need to keep our eyes very closely on the employment data. Uh, on consumer behavior in the United States, because that's what's kept us up at 70% of the U.S. economy. Um, but to to suggest that the U.S. economy is deterior, excuse me, the global economy is continuing to deteriorate, and the U.S. is going to be somehow immune to that, I think um, the, the probability of that is unlikely as well. So I'm not calling for a recession, but I think we need to be very careful here uh, not to uh, look at current data and assume that that represents the current state of the economy. That's data that we're looking at through the rearview mirror. Uh, gold, how does that feel to you right now, Aaron? Well, I, I don't like to be too tactical, but I will say that I think that the other big uh, theme here in, in the world today is that currencies are trying to outdo one another. Right. And the U.S. is late to the game on that. And I think the Fed has realized that. They can't say it explicitly. The dollar remains extraordinarily strong versus uh, the euro and the yen, of course, but, but other currencies like, like the South Korean won or the Australian dollar. And I think that by reducing rates, it will be an implicit way to try to reduce the value of the dollar. But at the end of the day, this race towards zero in currencies, maybe I'm being a little provocative by saying that, um, is going to benefit yeah. gold uh, over the long haul. So uh, generally net, net positive posture right. towards gold here. Great stuff. Aaron Kennan is co-founder and chief executive officer of Clear Harbor Asset Management. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.